I think too many times startups are acting as a thermometer and when they should actually be acting as a space heater. They're measuring the temperature of the market. But if you're a disruptor, if you're trying to create a new behavior in the world, you actually need to act more like a space heater. You need to change the temperature. You need to change the way people think. You're listening to The Startup Podcast, a show focused on helping you build, run, and invest in Silicon Valley-style startups. Whether you're an investor, founder, or operator in a startup, you'll gain insights on the principles that power high-growth disruption the way Facebook, Google, and Uber do it. The conversation starts now. Hi, everyone. I'm Yaniv. And I'm Chris. And today we've got a bunch of great audience questions from our listener Q&A. So, Chris, let's bust right in. We've got a question from a listener in Sydney, and they ask... We have got advice from VCs to raise early before it gets complicated. I'm sitting on the fence whether we should raise it, as it takes a bit of agility and liberty away from us. But I understand the benefits that VCs could bring. Would love to hear your thoughts. Before it gets complicated? What does that mean? That sounds like a sales pitch. Take our money, you know, otherwise things might get harder for you. Sounds like a mob boss. Actually, we've got another question from this listener, and I'm actually going to read that out because I feel it might shed some light on this and it might make sense to answer them a bit in tandem. So the next question is, I know you have talked about when to quit your day job before, but it would be great if you could do it again. It is such a dilemma for us as my co-founders think one of us should quit to grow the business while I am concerned we are having no revenue right now and it is too soon. So... Bear in mind, that question is from the same listener as the previous one. Yeah, and they don't want their name used. That's why we're not using their name, by the way. So look, one of the mistakes I've made in my career is get offered a term sheet. And we thought we could do way better. And we thought that we should hold out for a better deal. And we should not take the money. It turns out that that didn't happen. (laughs) And the company failed spectacularly. And so one of the things I often have at the top of my mind is take the money off the table as quickly as you can, because you just don't know about downturns. You don't know when the next term sheet's going to come. And you just don't know what risks and landmines you're going to hit along the way. But that doesn't mean you just take the first thing you're offered. It means that you want to always be having a lot of investors in the mix and you want to be having them almost competing with each other and understanding what kind of term sheet can I get? What is the likelihood of getting another term sheet? How many people are going to follow on with this lead investor and so on? This is not about just taking the first thing you're offered. But the point is, if you are in a position where money is being offered and it's being offered at a reasonable valuation and you are capital constrained or you have an ambition that will very quickly become capital constrained, then I think you do want to take some amount of capital. And so I don't know what they mean exactly by get complicated, but we talk endlessly on this show about the idea that an addiction to revenue or a dependency on revenue can create contortions, corruptions of your strategy. And so certainly having capital in the bank from the right kind of investors at the right valuation will mitigate some of these unintended consequences of running on the smell of an oily rag. And so just to quickly summarize, assuming it's the right kind of investor at the right kind of terms, and you have a Silicon Valley style startup that you're trying to build, not pretending to build one, if you refer to our last episode, then I think you want to take money off of the table when it's presented in the right way. Yeah, Chris, the reason I read the second question out before we went to the first one is exactly that last little bit that you were talking about, right? To me, this is a question about bootstrapping versus going venture-backed. And like you said, the last episode, Are You Lying to Yourself, is about really making sure that you are clear with yourself 
about what you're trying to build. So the second question was about when to quit your day job, right? So from that, I can infer that the listener and their co-founder are still actually working a day job and perhaps uncomfortable or concerned that you may not be able to afford to work full-time on your company while in bootstrapped mode. Now, of course, one way you can afford to quit your day job and go full-time is if you raise capital, because most reasonable investors will expect and be comfortable with founders paying themselves at least some amount of money to keep them fed and sheltered and whatnot. I'll go further with that, Yanev, because I think it's worth touching on. Only dumb money will insist you're not allowed to pay yourself. And if an investor is saying you can't pay yourself and pay yourself a living wage, run, don't walk away from that investor. They don't understand, again, the long game that they're playing. That's right. So the question here is really about if you want to be bootstrapped, right? You're talking about sitting on the fence where they should raise. It takes a bit of agility and liberty away. Again, depending on the investors, that may not be the case. But if you want to be fully bootstrapped, retain all the equity in your company, and you don't have a lot of personal runway about quitting your day job, personal runway simply means how long can you go without earning any money? right? If you don't have much of that, or if you don't have support from your spouse to not earn any money for a long time, then probably you don't want to quit your day job before you're bringing in revenue, because that's what you'll be using to pay for yourself. On the other hand, if you are comfortable, or if you want to be a venture-backed, high-growth Silicon Valley startup, where it's really about making a huge dent in the universe or probably failing, you don't get a lot of in-between outcomes, then like Chris said, do your due diligence, take the money from the right people, but by all means, raise early, get out of your job so you can actually focus on this business full time and build something great. So really, it's a personal decision. If you have someone offering you a check, that means that it's likely other people will offer you a check. And so you really need to take that check, take that lead investor, take that offer and shop it around. I meet a lot of founders who ping me about my advisory work and they're like, should we take this money or not take this money? It's kind of like a binary. And it's not take this money, not take this money. It's great. You have the first offer in what should be hopefully a line of people to offer you money. So take that check to other investors and build a round around it, build a fundraising round around it. It's not about taking a check. It's about doing a fundraise and using that first offer as part of the fundraise, either as a negotiating tactic or as just piecing together a whole bunch of investors around that person. Correct. You should be driving. So the next question is also from a listener who doesn't want their name used on the podcast. I'm going to paraphrase this one because it's actually quite long and complex. But the question is really, what do you mean by global from day one? For example, if you have a consumer-facing application available in an app store with no physical aspect to the business, that's global from day one. But there are a lot of differences in privacy and data laws around the world that seem to make it a bit more difficult for a lot of businesses to be available globally everywhere. The listener also mentions there are other businesses that were not global from day one. For example, Spotify, due to music licensing laws, rolled out quite slowly. Other companies such as Safety Culture and Afterpay were not global from day one and have become very successful and have had a global rollout. So I guess this one's probably more aimed at you, Chris, because I think this is sort of your thing here. But it's like, what do you mean by having a business that is global from day one? Yeah, I don't think I tend to use the phrase global from day one as much as I hear people say it around Australia. I use the phrase pick your market as intentionally as you pick your features. Maybe I've said the phrase global day one here and there, but I'm much more interested in the idea that you would launch in a market or markets that are large enough that mean you can survive and grow and thrive. And decidedly stated in the opposite, don't launch in Australia because that's where your ass is launch in Australia if your solution is uniquely Australian and that is your ambition and that is your desire. 
And so that's the first part of the answer, I guess. The second part of the answer is certainly if it's not a pure digital product and requires regulatory interactions or physical interactions, then choosing your first market is even more important. You have to be more deliberate and intentional about that because by setting it up in Australia, you're not proving anything. Oftentimes people say, oh, we just want to prove it in Australia. Well, you're just proving you can operate within the regulatory nonsense of Australia and within the capital requirements of Australia. And those things are very, very different in the US or UK. Another part of the answer is you want to maybe not be global day one, but you want to be in a globally significant market day one. So the UK or the US and in a market that isn't too fragmented for your particular vertical. You know, Europe, although it is spoken about in one breath, is a very fragmented marketplace. Sometimes you don't launch US, you launch California or or New York State. It is about being extremely intentional. And just to bring this home, let's talk about why. The first principles of why are we saying this? The why is you want to pick a market that is large enough that you're not desperately hunting for customers. The analogy I use is like trying to breathe in a vacuum. There's not enough oxygen particles in the air. And so you could be doing all the right things physically, trying to inflate your lungs and trying to suck air through your nose and you're still suffocating. And so you want to be in an oxygen-rich environment, in a market with, that's dense and well-populated. And you want to be in a market where the investor community is risk-tolerant and likes to invest in startups, where the regulatory framework is optimized or amenable to the kind of business you're doing. You just don't want all that headwind in your face when you're trying to do the very, very hard work of disruption and building a startup from zero to one. I was just thinking the question actually referenced differences in privacy and data laws around the world. And Chris, you mentioned Australia, but actually we have a global listenership. And think of someone perhaps in Europe who is planning to start a social network where there is a lot of user privacy concerns. So Europe has the GDPR, which has a lot of emphasis on user rights and so on around data privacy. So if you're in Europe and you want to create a product like this, consider not doing it in Europe. It's probably a bad place to do that because the GDPR will get in your way. And in fact, when Facebook launched Threads, its new Twitter competitor, they didn't launch it in Europe because they're like, ah, GDPR, it's too hard, right? So this isn't just about being in a relatively small or provincial market. It's about, to your point, Chris, choosing your markets thoughtfully and understanding the implications of that. So our next question is from Nan Mecca in Sydney, and she asks, can you identify a specific moment or experience that made you question your purpose in your professional career? How did it influence your path forward? What a great question. Yeah, I mean, I think the one that comes to mind for me, my life has been dotted with existential midlife crises from 15 at 20, at 25, at 30, at 35. I have them every five or seven years or so where I question everything and wonder if I've done anything right at all. And so, yeah, there are many, many moments in my professional career where that's been the case. The most recent one is my time at Uber, where, you know, I've mentioned on the show a number of times, the particular project that I was most excited about was extremely controversial. It touched a lot of raw nerves across the entire company, both with fellow product managers at the company, business development managers, engineer, everybody was just really freaked out by this idea. And it ultimately took Travis, the CEO, to take it under its wing and shepherd it through. But despite that, there was a lot of pushing uphill and Game of Thrones. And then when Travis left, of course, it was all vulnerable to disruption by internal forces. And so I actually went on sabbatical after that. I was like, I'm burned out. I need to go on sabbatical and rest and recover and rethink this. 
And through that time, I came to feel from my age, from my stage, with my network, my success or otherwise, I started to feel like Silicon Valley was just another rat race for me. I felt like I was a bit done on it. And that was an existential thing. It made me question my professional choices. And you know, I had imagined I would live in San Francisco for the rest of my life. And so that's when I made the choice to spend some more time in Australia and decided to ultimately quit the job in Uber and come back to Australia for what I thought would be just a short while. And now, as I've mentioned recently on the podcast, we're now thinking about going back to New York and having a different kind of lifestyle again. But that was a big existential shift for me and where I rethought the whole thing. So my one happened at my previous startup, Airtasker, and it was really around my transition from technical and engineering leadership to more of an organizational and people leadership. So I came into that company as VP of engineering, and my job was to really enhance the engineering capability, the engineering technical delivery capability of the organization. And so I guess two things happened through my journey of doing that. One is that although I certainly was involved technically and made a number of technical decisions, we made a large number of technical improvements, the key things that I did within the engineering organization to really make it more effective, and I believe I was largely successful alongside the many talented people I worked with there, were cultural, were organizational, were about ownership, were about what it means to be an engineer and so on. And so I realized that leadership, even in a technical environment, is very organizational, it's very people-centric. But then once I did reach a good degree of success leading the engineering organization and we were able to deliver, I started to see that just being able to deliver software wasn't interesting to me. It was only as useful as it was aligned with the rest of the organization to the extent that everyone was working together effectively. And that really signaled my move into general management, into my interest in creating high-performing organizations and viewing organizations as systems that need to be designed and, I guess, looked after to really deliver value ultimately. And so that's been obviously a huge influence in my career. So our next question is from Simon in Melbourne. And Simon asks, is it worth registering patents as a startup when you know you don't have the financial capacity or the time to chase up potential infringements? No. Next question. <laughs> yeah, I thought you might say that. It is very unlikely that registering a patent is a good idea at an early stage startup, especially, as you pointed out, amongst many other reasons, because you're unlikely to be able to chase up infringements. Generally, your intellectual property is less valuable than you think it is. If it is truly valuable, you're better off keeping it as a trade secret, which simply means don't tell anyone how it works, than patenting it. Patenting is very much a last resort. It's something that works, for example, in biotech, maybe in certain other deep tech areas. So again, I'll be more nuanced than you, Chris, and say, I'm sure there are times when patenting your technology is the right thing. But if you're asking this question to us, then the answer is nearly certainly no, because if you're in that industry, you would know that that is how you do things. Yeah, I was being deliberately provocative, but as you just said, if you're not in deep tech, then very likely patenting is a waste of time. And as you said, Yanev, I want to really highlight that. Your IP is unlikely to be as cool as you think it is. It's probably junk. The real IP is building a brand, building distribution, building growth, building a business, all that kind of stuff. Unless you're in hard tech, you have solved self-driving cars or some like how to laminate some material to some other material or something. Otherwise, you're probably not in the world that needs patenting. All right, so the next question is from Henry Innes, friend of the pod. He's actually been a co-host once. And Henry asks, engineering and highly technical cultures are often hard to orient towards customer impact and outcomes. How do you build a strong obsession with customer amongst highly technical organizations? I'm curious about your thoughts on that, Yanev, since you've come from highly technical organizations. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, 
it sort of goes back to my answer to Nan's question a little bit before, where definitely that was what I was doing to a large extent. So the first thing is to make sure that the engineers and the other technical folks are part of teams or squads. And we had an episode just a couple of episodes ago about squads that are aligned towards business outcomes. Again, one of the things I did early on at Airtasker was to move our organizational structure within engineering from technical lines, like we had the front end team and the back end team and the Android team oh God. to squads that were aligned around business objectives, where each squad had OKRs that were aligned around specific business outcomes and where performance to a large extent was measured by delivery against the those outcomes. So I think that's the organizational structure part of it. And then the other part from a leadership point of view is really the storytelling piece. We've talked about this before and about how one of the key roles of a leader is alignment and storytelling. Yes, technical folks might be a little bit harder to convince, but if you spend a lot of your energy sharing a vision, joining the dots between the technical work and the customer outcomes and making it very, very clear what is important to the organization, you will have more success in that area. And the final thing I'd say is there are engineers who are kind of craftspeople and they just don't care about that stuff as much. And there are engineers who are more, you could call them product engineers or more focused on delivering business outcomes. Now, in general, I much prefer the latter type of engineer. There is a place for the former type, right? People who are just highly, highly technical, love building software, love data, love analyzing things. If you're in a highly technical business, there is likely to be more need for them. And I know, Henry, you are in a highly technical business, as you kind of alluded to. And in those cases, I would say, make sure you have a good mix, right? Make sure that you have partnership between product engineers and those deeply technical engineers so that the work that is being done there is not disconnected from the business and so that they can't go rogue, I guess, which is one of the things that can happen. And again, I think is implicit in the question is folks who just love building technology and kind of go rogue and forget about the actual needs of the business behind that. Yeah, that's right, Jan Evan. I would summarize this as very simply clear and vivid missions, both for the company and for the squads. And organizing your squads around front end, back end, and other technology concerns is not clear and vivid missions. Crisp business goals. I really resonate with like one big headline goal, like help a million people by 2028 to do a thing. And just like very much like a big, bold, ambitious thing so that all of your proclivities to go off the beaten path and, and into the woods get eliminated. What you also need is an incredible chief product officer who is on the executive leadership team. They are equal peers with the CTO and report directly to the CEO. And they need to hire incredible product managers and build an incredible product culture, which includes this very hard work Yanev's talked about of storytelling and bringing engineers and other craftspeople along on the product journey and making sure that product managers are empowered and set up for success. If you don't have strong product leadership at the very top and strong product managers, it's impossible for the engineers to look on or lean on or adjust their behavior in line with product thinking. It's not possible. Engineers are terrible, terrible product thinkers. Now, let me clarify. I don't mean an engineer can't be a great product thinker. I mean, someone who is in the function of engineering cannot also do product thinking. There are different thought patterns and only really a small number of unicorns can do both, hold both ideas in their head at the same time. You need a clear separation and a clear collaboration between product and engineering thinking at your company. Maybe one final thing I'd say to that is that there are engineers who just kind of don't care about the business and in general, don't hire too many of those or don't allow <laughs> too many of those folks around. Like I said, they can be extremely talented, but 
they are kind of undirected missiles and they can be very difficult to manage and very difficult to lead. And you just don't need the headaches, right? So I've generally found that if you hire someone who's very talented, I've made this mistake, and they are very talented and they mean well, but they just want to build beautiful technology and that is more important to them than delivering customer outcomes. It is the rare startup that can make effective use of people like that. I want to give a shout out to my brother here just because I can. He's an engineer. He was recently flown to Seattle to meet with the head office of his company. And, you know, he certainly met with his engineering peers and engineering leadership, but he made a very particular point to meet with the chief product officer and ask him, you know, what was the vision for the product and what are they building for and what are their goals and where does his philosophy and first principles thinking come from? And he did that off his own back. And he mentioned it to me recently over the weekend. And I was just, I had a tear in my eye. like, oh, that's my brother. Good on him. <laughs> it's like an engineer who cares about product. That's what we like to see. Beautiful, Chris. It's beautiful. Okay. So the next question we have is from an anonymous listener in Singapore. I am working at a pre-Series A startup. I am slowly getting stagnant from the lens of learning and growth. There isn't enough manpower due to cost management, and I'm spending a lot of my time working on low-value work. Unfortunately, these tasks have to be done and aren't something one can further automate or eliminate. There is no clear progression, and I have not gotten an increment, though it's been over a year. Increment, I assume, means a salary increase. How do I initiate a conversation with my direct manager on this topic again? We have chatted about this, but there is still no clear direction. How do I bring this up again without appearing like all I care about is growth and salary? Look, I would say if you've spoken to your manager, the next step would be to speak to a skip level, right? So speak to your manager's manager, which, by the way, should be happening in all great companies as a matter of course. And I would just kind of see how deep the rabbit hole goes in terms of a lack of interest or understanding in this particular problem that you have. The second thing I think about is acting as if. So act as if you have the job you want to have. So stop waiting for permission, start doing bigger, bolder, more interesting things. It doesn't say here in your question whether you're a product manager or engineering and so on, but whatever it is, go start acting like you're doing the next thing and don't wait for permission. And then those two things failing, failing to bit notice to failing to see remediation, quit, go to another company. You know, there's a lot of talk about doom and gloom and the downturn and people being shed from companies. But actually, I think the evidence is that a lot of these people have been reabsorbed by other tech companies within 20, 30, 60 days. And so the labor market's still, I think, quite tight in tech. And so I would definitely start hunting around for a job where you think there's more career progression. It's also been shown in studies that I can't cite right now that people who move around every three or so years are actually accelerate their career progression rather than those who stick around for too long. Every job you have, you should either be doing it to earn or doing it to learn, ideally both. Working at a startup, you're rarely doing it to earn, at least in the short term. And I see these questions about the salary increment. And as a founder, as someone in management at an early stage startup, I can say cash is king for a startup and your worth is not measured by salary increases, right? It can be quite difficult, especially in this environment for startups to be able to afford salary increments. You deserve to be paid fairly, but increments are not the way you should measure how well your job is going at that startup. You mentioned it is pre-series A, so it's just not going to have a lot of money. But that learning versus earning balance should be tilting heavily towards learning. I'm sure you had a period where you were learning quite rapidly at this startup. Now the fork in the road is exactly as Chris says, right? Either you are in a position where you can act as if and get more out of it. Or you know what? What it sounds to me is like you say it's low value work, but it has to be done. Well, if work has to be done, it's not low value, I would say. If that work simply needs to be done and it's relatively manual, relatively repetitive, you've learned how it works, you've absorbed everything from being in the startup that you can learn, and you are so busy that there's no time for you to act as if. 
then as Chris says, maybe it's time to move on. There's this idea of a tour of duty where you work at a place, you get what you can out of it. They get what they can out of you. It's mutually beneficial. And at the end of it, you move on without resentment, right? Because if this startup needs someone to do this work, then they're not trying to do the wrong thing by you. They just need someone to do that work. And if you're no longer growing and you're no longer getting what you want out of the job, then it's time to flag to that company, to your employer, that maybe you will be moving on and it's time for them to think about bringing in the next person who can actually learn and grow in that role. You have to also remember the idea of personal opportunity cost. We talk mm. a lot on this podcast about opportunity cost for companies. Individuals have opportunity cost as well, of course, right? I'm reminded of a friend of mine who, if I mentioned his name, you probably would have heard of it, or at least if you look him up, you'll recognize his work. And he is the best startup employee I've ever met in terms of opportunity cost. He goes to the next emerging unicorn, one after the other after the other. He's worked at Facebook and LinkedIn and Twitter, all at their inflection points. He picks a winner and he works there, he gets their equity and makes a crap ton of money on the exit. And so he thinks of his career, much like investors, he invests his time in the companies that he thinks are most likely to succeed. So when you say, Yanev, you know, at startups, your salary is not your metric for success. It's how much you're learning. I would also argue it's how much equity growth you think that company is experiencing. And as an employee at a startup, you should be thinking of yourself as an investor, a sweat equity investor, and you should be investing in companies you think are succeeding, which applies pressure to startups to act more like we talk about on this show, which is what is your clear vision? What is your trajectory? Are you really a Silicon Valley style startup or are you lying to your employees? So that's why this really matters. AAA players are going to be looking for signs of that kind of growth. Exactly right. And, you know, again, I feel that there is a culture from folks who work at larger organizations and Anonymous, you mentioned you're from Singapore and I've now having had enough exposure to that market, the annual salary increment is like a strong cultural signifier. And I think it is one of those things that it is important to at least somewhat let go of at a startup. Again, annual increments, so like salary reviews are an important part of your role. But quite often, startups are going to reward you with equity, not with dollars. And so a lack of an increment is not the sort of insult that it might be at a larger organization where it would be used as a signal that you are not performing or not valued. Okay, we have another anonymous question. I'm not sure why we have so many anonymous questions, Chris. Um, never happened before. But this one says, why do investors require an ESOP, that's Employee Stock Options Pool, to be created that they are protected from being diluted by? Why is the dilution not shared for future hires, whose objective it is to increase the value for all shareholders? Shouldn't everyone be treated evenly from this dilution? Well, the answer is in your question, right? <laughs> to protect themselves from being diluted. Investors are very clever in protecting themselves from the downside to the degree possible. That's why. <laughs> yeah, I mean... Look, it's all like a lot of this stuff is shell games, right? Which is like dilution is not the horrible thing that you might think it is. The important thing is what is the size of your slice of pie multiplied by the size of the pie, right? So every share has a notional share price. And you can say, oh, well, you know, we do pre-money valuations or post-money valuations. We create the ESOP before we value the company or after the value of the company. All this stuff, they're just different lenses on viewing the same thing. But ultimately, you've got a pie that always adds up to 100%. That's just maths. And you're dividing it up in different ways. So this isn't really about dilution. It's about saying we are putting aside a certain amount of that 100% to give to future employees. And at the point at which you've taken on investment, the investors are saying, well, for the purpose of the valuation, we're not counting that. So, you know, I think there's nothing nefarious happening here. And I think understanding that basic maths beyond that question of dilution is the way of getting comfort around this sort of thing. 
Yeah, this connects to a larger point, which is like dilution and valuation in these smaller markets with more risk-averse capital is kind of like so wrought with indecision and angst. And I'm just not sure the company's worth that much and all this other stuff. The goal of these companies is that they're worth 10, 100x, 1,000x what you're investing in and what you're doing. And so quibbling around percentage point here or there is such a waste of time. I'm really very much broadening the point here. But the question from the investor side is, do we believe this thing has a chance of making a dent in the universe, of, of tapping into a behavior change, of disrupting something in the world, and therefore capturing enormous amounts of economic value? Do we want to seat on this rocket ship? And do we see this rocket ship going to the moon or to Mars? And all too often, I find that Australian investors and European investors is like, well, you know, look at the revenue multiple of the whatever is like, shut up, dude. Are you investing in this thing for the long term? And are you part of this equity growth journey and this escape velocity journey? Or are you not? Like get on the rocket ship or get off. The same thing is for employees, right? Are you contributing to make this company great? And are you going to participate in that upside or not? And if you don't believe the equity is growing, commensurate with a rocket ship, then get off the ship and go to somewhere else. There are a lot of incredible companies growing really, really fast. Find one, book a seat and go all the way to the moon. Look, ownership matters, but I don't think we should oversimplify that. And ownership percentages matter because that determines how much of the upside you get. And for venture capital investors, it determines whether they're going to be able to have the right economics for their LPs and so on. But yeah, this idea of like who's getting diluted, who's not getting diluted. It's like, is the value of your equity going up? Is it going up fast? If yes, don't worry about it. I think that's really the point. All right. Our final question comes from Daniela in Singapore. And they ask, how do you know when it's time to pivot? And what's a pivot? A complete change of direction of the business or just a change in the business model that would slightly change the product and the way you approach sales? What are the real implications of a pivot for a startup and the founders? Wow, that's nearly a whole episode, huh, Chris? We have a whole episode on this, an episode about pivoting, actually, in the back catalog. And yeah, we spent a lot of time kind of dissecting what is really a pivot and what are the implications of the pivot and when should you pivot? And I've forgotten more than I remember about the subject. But I want to repeat something Yanev said on that episode, and then I want to talk about the implications of a pivot. So Yanev, you talked about this idea of like firmly having one foot planted on the ground and then turning your body. Like that's a pivot. So mm. you're, you're actually changing direction. And that's what a pivot is. You have one foot in where you were, but you're turning your body to a different direction. And you can think of that analogy when you think about your startup. Whereas a course correction or an adjustment or learning and improving is not a pivot. It's just the continual process of iteration. But, you know, you said here, what are the implications for the team and for the founders? In my experience, a pivot and even a large course correction involves more significant changes to the business, business model, go to market actions, product, marketing, founders, mindset, everything than most operators and founders believe that it will. And so they will change one or two or three aspects of the business. And later, if they're lucky, they will realize that there are other parts of the business that didn't change, that should have changed, that was holding them back. And so anytime you do any kind of recalculation, small, medium, or large, I'd really encourage you to think through all of the aspects of your business, from the team, to the pricing, to the partnerships, to the product strategy, and see what the real implications are of that adjustment. Because it's often a lot more significant than you would imagine. I agree. And we can argue about definitions a bit too much, but like some of the most classic examples of pivots, I don't actually believe are pivots, like Slack's pivot from making a game to making a messaging platform. To me, that's more like a reboot or yeah. close enough to that. We're like, you know what? We're throwing this thing out. At that point, you probably need to at least offer your investors to return their money because the thesis has changed so much that what they invested in is no longer what you're building. Often they say no, and that's what happened in the case of Slack. They're like, keep going. We like what you're doing. 
a pivot is like, hey, we've learned a bunch of stuff and, you know, we thought we were going to go into one market, but we're going to go into a different market. We thought this was our target customer. Actually, that's our target customer. The product needs to look quite different, even though it's solving the same problem. That's what a pivot is. And I think that's much more common and pivots come in different sizes as well, right? Small, medium, large. And I think rather than fixating on the term pivot, it's really about making sure that you're always taking what you learn and applying that forward to making the best possible decisions to meet your vision and your growth potential. Ultimately, there is no hard and fast answer to this. It is very much an art versus a science. And we're quibbling about degrees here. You know, is it an adjustment or a pivot or a big pivot or a reboot? But the thing I do want to say about this is when is it not time to pivot? And I just got off a call with a company I'm advising and shared this idea that you see often in the marketplace, which is like people will ship an MVP and it'll fail and then they pivot and they ship another MVP for a different thing and then they pivot and they ship another MVP and then they pivot. And they're like, they feel like if they just keep adding whole features, whole MVPs, whole ideas into the mix, then maybe this next one, this one will be the one that helps us break through. And oftentimes, actually, that's not the case at all. The idea of your first version of your product is putting a stake in the ground and then iterating your way to success, learning and incrementing, learning and incrementing, learning and incrementing. And too often people will go for the pivot. They'll go for a new product and a whole new different feature, a whole new different business model. And they never actually try to get the first thing right. And that I find a lot, a lot, a lot. And that's why I'll often meet founders who are way out in the tall grass from their original plan because they tried the original thing for half a minute and they didn't immediately see the traction that they were hoping to see. And they switched to B2B or they switched to some other thing. They didn't execute properly and fully on the original idea. I think there's always this tension and there should be a tension between staying the course and making course corrections. And, you know, that's true on a sailing ship. You don't just want to go whichever direction the wind is blowing, right? Because then you're not going to get to where you're going. On the other hand, you need to be responsive to the direction of the wind. And ultimately, it is the wind that blows you and you want to harness that. So you want to be neither like constantly pivoting and changing course, nor just sticking to the plan rigidly forever. You want to be taking those signals and using that to re-plan your route and change the tactics. But ultimately, your goal is going to be similar in the long term. Yeah, this is where the difference between experience and reading articles and listening to podcasts, it just takes a certain amount of experience and a good intuition to know when and what to adjust. I think to the degree possible, you want to do it scientifically, right? Like you want to collect data and adjust. But in the early days, there's insufficient data and you actually need to rethink the model. That ultimately just comes down to experience and intuition. I want to just add a thought that came to mind that I haven't used before, but I think it's a good metaphor. I think too many times startups are acting as a thermometer when they should actually be acting as a space heater. They're measuring the temperature of the market. But if you're a disruptor, if you're trying to create a new behavior in the world, you actually need to act more like a space heater. You need to change the temperature. You need to change the way people think. And I think people pivot too fast when they realize, oh, actually it's cold in here. And so we didn't get the warm and toasty reception we wanted to. So let's switch to another room. They didn't try hard enough to be a space heater, to actually change the conversation and to prosecute their pitch and their argument in the world. And I'm encountering this so much in my advisory work where I feel like the company never actually prosecuted to the fullest extent possible their vision of what could be true in the world. And the moment a partner or a customer or someone said, no, I don't like that, they go, oh yeah, sorry. Well, how can we change our mind for you? <laughs> and it's like, well, yeah. you didn't pitch it right. You didn't change, yeah. you didn't change their mind. Absolutely. Okay, so that was our listener Q&A. Remember, our listener Q&A form is always open. You can find links to it in our show notes or by signing up to our newsletter, which we would love you to do, at tsp.show. And don't forget, if you are listening to a few of our episodes and getting a ton of value, you've implicitly signed up to the Startup Podcast Pack. 
which means that we ask you to please rate and review us on your favorite podcasting app, share us on your favorite social network and spread the word that helps us help more founders. And ultimately, that's the name of the game. All right, Yanev, thanks for joining me. It's been great. Thanks a lot, Chris. See you guys in the next one. Bye-bye.